I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by concertmaster of the National Symphony Orchestra, Narit Bar-Joseph. When she came to the NSO in 2001, she was the youngest ever appointed concertmaster of a major U.S. orchestra. She was previously assistant concertmaster of the Boston Symphony Orchestra and principal second violin of the St. Louis Symphony. She tells us what it's like to be a concertmaster, her behind-the-scenes responsibilities, and she even plays some of her favorite concertmaster solos. Just a heads up, we mention a musical term you might be unfamiliar with. In Italian, Tutti refers to everyone playing together as a section. For instance, the first violin section playing their music together after the concertmaster plays a solo line. Thank you so much, Narit, for joining me. The answer to the question, what does a concertmaster do, it seems pretty straightforward for musicians, but from a casual audience member's perspective, it might seem like all you do is walk on stage at the last minute and stand there for a moment while the orchestra tunes. And maybe for someone who's never even been to a concert before, they might think you've just showed up late and now you don't even know where to sit. (laughs) I'm wondering, have you had any of those kind of assumptions before? (laughs) I can assure you I'm not late. I'm actually probably one of the first people at the hall before every concert, just for the pure need of feeling warmed up and sort of having my head in the game, so to speak. So we're going to dive into the details, but if you had to describe the concertmaster position in just a few sentences, what would you say? It's funny. I always find this very difficult to answer because there are so many things involved with the job. But I would say, you know, one of the jobs of the concertmaster is I see myself as sort of a liaison between the conductor and the orchestra. And also, it's a bit of a combination of being both a soloist and a team player, because as most people know, when they go to a concert, you know, oftentimes there will be a like a, a solo line for the concertmaster. And those are the moments where I suddenly have to, you know, come out of the woodwork and play this solo and then go back to being a team player and, you know, be playing the rest of the 2D sections with my first violin section. But I would, I, you know, my main sort of the way I describe it is that I see myself as a liaison between the conductor and orchestra. So you work as kind of a liaison between conductor and the orchestra, this intermediary. You are, you know, the stable face at the front of the orchestra for the whole season. And I think you also, you have to do some kind of behind the scenes work as well, writing in the bowing so that violins all play together uniformly and with um, the right sound. It's not just chance that everyone is moving their bows together at the same time. That's true. You know, sometimes (laughs) there's a small part of me that wishes we could just have free bowing sometimes. There are some European groups that do that. I know in America, we tend to have more of a People like to be more uniform and all bows moving in the same direction. I will say that it could get a little messy, I guess, with free bowing as, you know, you don't want to poke somebody's eye out. Sometimes we're sitting very close together. I have this sort of way I deal with things with our librarians who will give me music well in advance. I mean, there are some major pieces that are already in the library pre-bowed because we've been doing that. There's a tradition of playing things a certain way. But, you know, oftentimes there'll be pieces that are rental parts or 
brand new parts or a conductor decides they want to play off of a different edition and so some of the editing some things are different and usually the Boeings are done months in advance and what will happen is I will do the first violin parts obviously and then once I finish with my part there are then photocopies that go out to the other string principals they then you know, try to line up their Boeings with mine as best as they can. And sometimes we have to, you know, we compromise and we discuss things that may not work for another section. But, you know, you come to a concert, you think this is the event that you're seeing, but it's been months leading into this, just this one week of performances. Now, does your work as concertmaster, does that stop at the end of the string section? Do you have anything that you have to do involved with, you know, the winds or even the percussion? Um, I mean, not really little things like if something's not quite lining up in rehearsals, you know, a percussionist or the timpanist or someone in the winds uh, or brass will come to me and say, hey, you know, this one place, it's just never quite jiving. Are you what do you think we should do? Or there's just a little bit of that. We're trying to work on certain things. Nobody can expect the conductor to work miracles and that everything comes together just from this one person on the podium. So if there has to be, we'll talk about something, you know, just privately myself and another member of another section just to maybe figure out how we could get one specific place together. Or I'll just say, you know, we have a lot of fast 16th notes here and there's 16 of us playing this one passage. So if you could, you know, maybe not rush or give us a little more time or just little things like that. Yeah. So what does this look like? day to day, week to week. So if we pick like a hypothetical week in the future, there's no big solos. It's not Scheherazade, but it's a concert that's got a guest conductor. There's an overture, there's a concerto and some kind of a symphony. And I'm wondering, when does that preparation start? Is it just days before rehearsal, weeks or even months? First of all, I like to know way in advance if there are any solos. And and if there aren't any big solos. I'm always looking ahead. I would say in the beginning, when we get a season announcement or when we get the draft of what is probably going to happen the following season, I'm already in my head thinking, well, okay, there's Beethoven 7, there are the Beethoven symphonies. I've played those several times. I know I won't need as much time preparing for those, but if it's something you know, more obscure or if they're like pieces that come up that we don't play all that often. My preparation definitely starts months in advance, sometimes up to three months in advance, just to kind of learn a piece and just sit with it for a while. While I'm working on everything else and playing everything else, I'll just, you know, keep learning this one piece so that I know that three months from that time, I will feel confident and comfortable playing it at a high level. So you're looking at the music way ahead of time, scheduling, okay, I can. I need to work on this stuff now for this concert in so many months, or I can put this on the shelf for this month. I can worry about that one in a few weeks. Leading up to the the week of the concert series, does something change like the week before, even maybe the first day of rehearsal that also sets in motion how you're preparing the concert as well? Oh, absolutely. My main thing is I learn the music so well that if there's a curveball thrown at me, either by the conductor or something unexpected from another section or another player, that I can react quickly. I know the music well enough that I can react quickly 
all of the preparation that leads up to that first Tuesday morning rehearsal. That's also the moment where I've had my own musical ideas or I feel phrases a certain way. And on Tuesday morning, it's either, you know, I've got to give all that up because the conductor is asking for something completely different or, yeah, I mean, that's really when it feels real is on that Tuesday morning. And and knowing that you have Tuesday rehearsal, Wednesday rehearsal, Thursday dress rehearsal, and then Thursday night, you're already going to be performing that program or that particular piece. Um, that's definitely when I start feeling just more excited about it in general. Like, it's here. Okay. You know, I'm ready. And with a guest conductor, do you talk with them before that Tuesday rehearsal? Or is it kind of just we all show up on Tuesday and this is where we start the collaboration process? Mm-hmm. You know, that varies from one conductor to the next. Some guest conductors like to have a word with the concertmaster, especially if there's a concertmaster solo, like such as Heldenleben or something big. But I'm always there. I am always make myself available. It's part of my job. And I enjoy meeting and just talking about musical ideas with different conductors as well. It's just, it's a learning experience for me. And it sounds kind of important. I guess if there's no... If it's kind of the standard repertoire, then you show up and, and then we work on on the music then. But if it's like you, you were saying, Strauss's Ein Heldenleben with these huge solos or perhaps Scheherazade, they also want to know probably what you want as well in these solos or when, maybe what has kind of been the tradition for the orchestra. Yeah. I mean, usually there's some back and forth that they want to hear is there a particular place that you like to take a little bit more time or I should I should wait until I bring the tutti in with this one pizzicato or there's definitely some back and forth. It's not just them dictating to me how they would like the solo. There's just, you know, ideas between the two of us and it helps for a sense of comfort and knowing that, you know, I'm hopefully doing what the conductor would like with the solo while at the same time they are letting me have certain amount of freedom with it. And you mentioned a little detail thing a moment ago that like just, you know, waiting for where I'm going to place this pizzicato or maybe where they want it or maybe where you want it. This is something that lasts a fraction of a second, but it's important and that you have to be so flexible as a concertmaster, it seems, to all of these situations. It's not that just, oh, I can play these solos and I play them this way. No, you have to be able to play them upside down and backwards in any way and literally any moment, maybe on the you know Friday night concert, the second one, something happens in the performance and all of a sudden you have to adjust yes. and you have to be able to do that on the fly. Right. Absolutely. And that's where we go back to having, you know, we were speaking about preparation and the amount of time that I spend preparing for concerts. And that's why I personally like to have many, many weeks, if not months of, you know, really living with a piece, especially if there's a big solo like that. And if I know that there's a particular, there's one entrance that I have to wait for before moving on to the next part of my solo. Yeah, if that means saving more bow or moving quicker in a passage than I'm normally used to, it's, that's all part of it, absolutely. But that's also why I love what I do, because every day is different and every day just has a different variation of creativity, which is why I love it. And when you have one of these big solos, 
Does that mean you have just so much more to prepare for a concert? Or are you able to, it seems like sometimes you don't actually play maybe the first half of a concert if the second half is a big, big feature of you. For the most part, I'll play a full program or maybe what I'll do is I'll take the, if there's a concerto with a soloist, you know, say we have an overture, so I'll play the overture. And then if there's a concerto with a soloist, I'll take the concerto off because we're just accompanying another soloist. I mean, not just accompanying, but (laughs) it's not absolutely necessary that I be there for that. And so normally my associate concertmaster will sit concertmaster for that one piece so that I have, you know, a little bit of time to maybe just rest my arms and kind of get my head more in the game of the big piece coming up on the second half, which has a big concertmaster solo. When you're taking that concerto off, because you have this big solo or something later in in the second half, there's an associate concertmaster as well, right? That's when they slide over into that next chair. Exactly. Yeah. Or... Or if I get sick, that associate concertmaster also has to be ready to play the big solo. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. There's some great moments. They're not, well, they're not really great moments, but when you think of there's a concerto, uh, maybe the Mendelssohn violin concerto, and there is the soloist is playing, and all of a sudden a string breaks for the soloist. There's a great video online. I'm going to put it on the show notes page because it shows it from a different perspective, but the immediacy with which a soloist string breaks, they just hand their violin over to the concertmaster, in this situation, the associate, and then they they hand them their violin right back. The associate then has to hand the violin with the broken string to the next violinist to take care of. And there's a, there's a great sequence with Ray Chen where string breaks, they exchange violins, exchange violins again, and then he pulls <laughs> a string out of his pocket and throws it on the ground. And it's it's pretty funny, but that's that's just one of those <laughs> moments where you're playing and all of a sudden you have to give away your instrument. Right. And and the the poor soloist has to play on a, you know, completely foreign instrument. I learned this from my Boston Symphony days. I was assistant concertmaster, third chair in the Boston Symphony for three years before coming here. And the very first time I sat on the front desk, so I was sitting in second chair, and I noticed there was a little pouch taped on to the inside of the folder that holds all of the music. And I realized there were spare strings in there. And I was like, that is brilliant. So I made, (laughs) I had our librarians put little pouches in all of our folders, and I now have spare strings in every folder. So we're ready. I mean, I've popped strings before and had to give my violin to the associate or assistant concertmaster. And, you know, there's a string right there. It's ready to go. So those are the exciting, dramatic moments that they do happen. <laughs> and the show must go on. So the show must go on and your heart's beating about 100 times faster right. <laughs> for about 10 <laughs> <And> seconds. <laughs> That's right. And you're trying to, you know, thread this the tip of the string into this tiny peg hole and yeah, with your hands shaking and it's not fun, but <laughs> I didn't think about that. It is. I mean, it can be like trying to thread a needle, but now you're doing it on stage, and there's a thousand people looking exactly. at you. Especially, yeah, I love the faces of the people in the front row when it happens. It's just, you know, <laughs> it's like, hey, it's reality TV. So <laughs> there it is. Even when I'm in the audience and something like that happens, my heart just explodes. Right. <laughs> and it's oh, it's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> so, what are some of the big examples of these solos that you have to play. I mean, these are, you have to play them to the level 
or know them to the level that if I woke you up at three in the morning, you'd have to be able to play them like on a roller coaster or something. Stuff you just <laughs> have to know. Like, what does a concert master have to know? Oh, I mean, okay. So, of course, there's Scheherazade. Of course, there's Einheld and Leben, another one of my favorites. There's a, a St. Matthew's Passion, which isn't, well, that's not played as often, unfortunately. I mean, I think it's so beautiful, but oh my goodness. There are kind of Brahms one has a beautiful solo in the second movement where concertmaster and the principal horn are playing together and then the concertmaster continues and I mean, you know, the the main ones are you're always gonna see Heldenleben, Zarathustra is another big one. You just always have to know it comes back every so often. The big Strauss, you know, there are even some moments in Don Juan. There are a couple of lines that just come out of nowhere and they're awkward. Boy, it's yeah, it, there's a pretty long list of solos, but and a lot of them come from Strauss. Correct. <laughs> so, Narit, can you play for us a couple of your favorite moments here? Yes, absolutely. Which one do you want to start with? Um, I'm going to start with. I think I'll play the. Uh, aria from St. Matthew's Passion by Johann Sebastian Bach. It's the Erbarme dich, mein Gott, which means have mercy, my God. That was absolutely beautiful. What are you, are you thinking about anything while you're playing that? Is there a kind of moment you're leading up to? How is that? I'm wondering how that's playing out in your head. The whole piece is just so glorious. And the aria itself reflects Peter's heartache after he denies knowing Jesus three times. And I'm not a religious person. I'm, I'm also Jewish. But for some reason, this music, it really does feel like it's from somewhere else. Obviously, we all know Bach was genius. And, you know, I think about just the words to this aria are, have mercy, my God, for the sake of my tears, look here, heart and eyes, weep bitterly before you, have mercy, have mercy. The music just works with the words so well. And it's just music that's straight from the heart, really. Well, it's beautiful. And the things you're saying, it's just, it's... Not it's not like it's just sad. I mean, it's like this despair and this pouring out, yeah. this crying out that you're that you're having to portray. And it's also it sounds like it it's kind of vulnerable as well because you're doing all this at the front of the stage and people are listening to you basically kind of crying out. Right, and it's an aria, so then it's for mezzo soprano. It's an alto solo, and so you know the violin starts with this sort of introduction. And then the mezzo comes in, you know, pretty much where I ended. And then we kind of have this little, almost like a duet that goes on. And it's just, 
really a glorious movement. So what's another moment or something you want to play? Well, <laughs> I couldn't talk about being a concertmaster without talking about Scheherazade, which was written by Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. As we all know, it's very famous and loved by everyone. When I was a little girl, my parents had this LP, if if people know what LPs are anymore. <laughs> oh, they're coming back in fashion. <laughs> That's true. And it was Bernstein conducting the New York Philharmonic with, I think it was like a 1959 recording. And the concertmaster was actually John Carigliano Sr. And I just remember hearing the glorious violin solo that enters, you know, basically almost at the top of the piece and just thinking, God, it's just exquisite. And it really is one of my favorite pieces. I mean, no matter how many times we play it, I love the entire piece. I love the I love the bassoon solos. I love, you know, every every movement has something beautiful, but but the violin solos are really they really stand out to me and also because I think that Rimsky-Korsakov actually based the piece on so well. So what part of Scheherazade do you want to play right now? The opening solo line that the violin has. That was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Are you brought back to that childhood moment, hearing it that first time from that LP? I am, definitely. It's, yeah, it, I feel like it's a, a piece that's been with me for so long. And, you know, I happen to know it's one, like one of my mom's favorite pieces. And I don't know, it just, yeah, I, I'm always thinking about that every time we, every time we play it, every time I see it coming up on a program. And you know, it's based on the story of a, a Thousand and One Nights or Arabian Nights. And it's about this sultan who he gets married and then he slays all of his wives the next day and <laughs> the morning after he's married them. And just the story of Scheherazade, who decides that, you know, she's going to save her own life by coming up with these stories. And she's going to tell him a different story every night in order to kind of keep him from killing her because he's going to want to hear the next story and hear the next story. And so I just think of her, her voice coming in. Um, it's, it really is like a princess entering the room. Um, that's how I, yeah, it's, boy, I don't even know how to put that to words. But <laughs> Well, and that's, and that's a reason when you play it, you sound the way you do. And that's because when you're saying, I, there's not even words. And that's because there's a difference between when you hear someone playing something, yeah, they're playing it and it sounds great. They're, you know, they're doing all the right things. They're putting all the things in the right places. But when something really means something to somebody and then it's it's just so innate and internalized and then they're, you know, you're telling a story and that's what comes across in the music. 
well, thank you. But yeah, that's exactly how I feel about this. It is really a story and I'm just the messenger. Yeah. And what about another moment, maybe something that contrasts with this uh, delicate sounding princess entering a room? Boy, there are lots of moments in Ein Heldenleben, which is by Richard Strauss. Um, it's a hero's life and it's basically um, autobiographical piece kind of depicting himself, Strauss, as the hero. And he actually uses the violin as his wife's voice. And his wife, Pauline, was a German operatic soprano, and he described her as snobbish and eccentric, ill-tempered. Um, you know, she was <laughs> very complex person, apparently, and quite moody. And it's just funny that he happens to give her voice to the violin. And there are some beautiful tender moments to really some kind of crazy moments. And you can really get a sense of the scope of her personality through his writing. And which personality are we going to hear? <laughs> a little bit of both. I'll play maybe the first time we hear her, which is quite tender and loving, and then a little bit of the crazy. <laughs> So obviously, this is a solo you've played just millions of times in the practice room and on stage. Does it change over time for you? Do you play it a little bit differently now than you did maybe even five, ten years ago? Well, I wouldn't say millions of times, um, but I never like to play anything really the same way twice. I try to change, you know, maybe I'll change a couple fingerings here or different bowing there. I've been on different instruments with it, different violins, so things feel different. It does change. I will say it never gets easier. In some respects, it gets harder. And in some respects, it just feels comfortable because you, you kind of know what to expect. You kind of know, you know the places where you're going to be a little more nervous or when I know it's coming up and I know we're going to be playing it, I kind of like to approach it as if it's new, even though I know I've done it before. And I think having done it before, I think that does kind of give me a certain level of confidence, but I do try to approach it as if I'm doing it for the first time. And what can I do a little bit differently? Looking to the future, do you see any changes down the line for concert masters in the future and, and generations and generations to come? Do you see some changes that are maybe coming around? Um, you know, that's a good question. I uh... Are there any changes that you would hope for? I guess one thing I would wish for is that maybe, especially going back, if we're going to be doing sort of smaller, you know, <laughs> if we still have to play distanced and, and maybe even masked, and if we're going to have, you know, fewer people on stage, or we're going to be doing more kind of chamber orchestra type things, it would be nice to be maybe doing some more leading from the first chair and have it feel a bit more like chamber music for everyone rather than having 
everyone rely on just this person on the podium, I think it would be nice to do a little bit more of that. But I think the job of the concertmaster as it is, I can't imagine anything that should be different in the future. Is there something you wish audiences knew about concertmasters, something that maybe they they wouldn't know just by going to concerts and seeing you play? Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> maybe that you're not actually not late to the concert, that you are supposed <laughs> to walk on stage last. Right. Although, you know, some orchestras, for instance, like in Boston, they don't, at least when I was there, the concertmaster was not making an entrance. Some people don't don't do it. And I guess I would like my audience to know if, if anyone thinks I'm late, I'm, I'm definitely not late. I am supposed to walk out after everybody is seated and kind of turn around and wait for the oboe to play the A so everybody can tune to the A. And um, But is there a specific reason why the lights come down a bit and then the concertmaster walks out and there's the applause? Is there a reason why they're out last? I actually don't know that. I think the concertmaster does represent the orchestra. But if you look in Europe, a lot of them do the European entrance where really the entire orchestra walks on stage together. And it's not just the concertmaster. I think that's, you know, maybe more in the States. It's the entire orchestra is seated and the concertmaster walks out as sort of a representing the orchestra. And, you know, aside from the lights going down, it's also a little bit of a chance to <laughs> maybe get the audience to quiet down a little bit. Like, I'm here, I've taken my bow. Now you really have to be quiet because the conductor is going to come out and then that's serious business. So, <laughs> Well, now that you say all that, now I secretly hope that in 1790, the concertmaster <laughs> was actually late and then just said, oh no, this is how it's supposed to be. I walk right. on last. <laughs> and now we're all doing something because of uh, that one person. Right. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Nurit, for just sharing with us your fantastic playing and all these, all the insight as to what it means to be and just what is involved in being a concertmaster in an orchestra. Well, thank you for having me. It's really, it's an honor. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. If you have any comments or episode ideas, send them to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA.